Good morning, everyone. Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry to interrupt your conversations, but come on, take a seat. We're going to get going this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you're here joining us on this three-day weekend. And uh, we're really excited about you being here because uh, today we're, we're kicking off a brand new series. So you're coming in at the very beginning of a movie, if you will. It's, a good, it's the best time to get here. We're going to be in this series throughout the entire fall semester. So uh, we're kicking it off. We're calling it A Moving Faith, and it's a series out of the book of First Thessalonians. We're calling it a moving faith because of one of the major themes in the book of 1 Thessalonians is that uh, uh, our faith is meant to move us along to grow up into Christ-likeness, to grow into being uh, like Christ in character, and that uh, God moves us in our faith to also uh, join him in what he's doing in the world, that, we would, uh, that he would be moving through us to take the gospel to other people as well. And so that our faith, the, the Christian faith, is uh, to be a far from a stagnant faith. Far, far from, uh, you know, just uh, you know, something that you just, every once in a while uh, participate in or something that you kind of staple on to, the, to uh, your life, but it's not, you know, center and it's not moving us. But the Christian faith is always intended to be a really a moving faith, far from stagnant. Uh, and as we talked about just last week, if I can remind you, like it's, it's such a big deal that like the Christian faith as God works uh, in our lives, what we see is that He's trying to like revolutionize with him to be a part of us, and we get to be invited with him to be a part of what he's doing in the world, which is to literally change the world. Like that's our faith. Like he's God's changing us and inviting us to join him to change the world with him. That we would join him in stemming the tide of brokenness in this world, and that instead we would join him in filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, saturating the earth with the knowledge of his glory. That's that's what the Christian faith is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a moving faith. But I I wonder uh, for all of us. If you would uh, describe your faith in that way, that you would say, oh, my faith really is active, it's, it's, it's moving, it's thriving faith, or would you, like me sometimes, uh, say that, man, when you evaluate your faith, you say, man, I feel like I've got maybe a case of spiritual uh, arthritis, right? <laughs> where it's like I got, you know, a little, uh, little stiffness in the joints, a little morning stiffness when you try to get out of bed, to, you know, like I should spend time with God. Start off my day, but you just find, man, I just don't feel like I, I've got the ability to do that. Or, or it just is so hard to, to take that step. Or perhaps you're like, uh, you know, you see the good that you ought to be doing, but you just are so unmotivated. Or you just find like you're so weighed down that it's just hard to really do that stuff. Or, you know, I wonder if you were just to evaluate like where you are right now in your spiritual life, and if you were to look back just even one year to this time and say, like, do you see signs of how God has really been moving you to be more like Christ over this last year? Or would you say, no, I, I guess I would probably say that I'm, I'm about the same place spiritually as I was last year. Or if you were to evaluate, like, you know, look behind you and see what kind of uh, wake you're leaving and, like, are people be, uh, being spurred on through you to know Christ and to love Christ more? Are, are there people that have been discipled up in the faith and even perhaps come to know Christ through you this last year? Or, or would you say, when you evaluate that, that you'd say, okay, I, you know, I don't see a lot of, of movement there either. 
You see, guys, there's a lot that works against us having a moving faith. Like we have uh, you know, the, the pull of this world, the, the, the pull towards comfort, or just, you know, we're just so busy. We just get kind of wrapped up in other things, or I mean, we got the pull of sin, selfish, or other types of sin that can trip us up and, and tie us down and keep us from moving with Christ like we're called to and, and intended to. And all this stuff works against us having a moving faith. But here's the truth, that we serve a God who is not stagnant. We serve a, a God who's always on the move and always inviting us and wanting to do this great work in our life to bless us and to make us whole and to heal us and restore us and to mature us into Christ that we would be able to, uh, you know, like bask in the great pleasures and, and, and satisfaction that it is to know God and to walk with him and have a joy-filled relationship with him, that that's what he's always wanting to do in our life. And because God is a gracious God, this is good news to me, I hope it's good news to you, is that uh, he is always willing to meet us right where we are. So when it comes to our journey of faith, whether we haven't even begun or we're stuck in a rut or we're moving at a snail's pace or whatever it might be, that God comes to us and he invites us, he beckons us to come and join with him in what he wants to do in our life for his glory and our good and through our life to, to stem the tide of brokenness and fill it with his glory. So he meets us where you are and he beckons us forward. And what I'm excited about this series is uh, because in 1 Thessalonians, we get to study uh, Paul's letter to what is declared like the model church of the first century. In fact, Paul makes this statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that uh, they had, the, the, the believers in Thessalonica had become examples to all the believers in their region. That they had become examples to all the believers in their area. That they were like the model Christians. And they said, okay, well, like, based on what Christ has done in them, this is what he had led them to become. And what we get to study, guys, is to see what God was doing in their lives. And how God wants to work in our lives that we too can be moved to grow in Christ's likeness and to join God in what he's doing in the world. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this series, this is a, a moving faith, and I really hope that God will speak to us uh, through it and grow us as a result of uh, what he has to say to us through his, his word. But um, here's where we're going to go today. So like I said, we're kicking off the series, but we're actually not going to spend much time in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Oh, it's kind of weird. That's the series we're starting. But we're going to actually begin in the book of Acts, chapter 17, 1 through 10. Because in Acts, we find the story of how the church in Thessalonica was actually started. All right? And so we're going to get the backdrop of everything that was written to the church in, Thessalo to the, uh, in 1 Thessalonians. And so there will be a helpful backdrop. We are going to look at the very first couple verses of 1 Thessalonians. But most of the time, like I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 17. And so let me pray and then we will uh, jump in there. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us. Well, did you give me your words to say? I, I Admittedly, just feel scattered this morning. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, despite me, uh, really speak to us through your word. To move us to believe that you are who you say you are and that you've really done what you've told us you've done for us. That we would be fully committed to you, Christ. 
And move us in, in that direction for your glory, God, and for our good and for the good of all others as well uh, this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. It just starts off this way. Uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And the reason that uh, Paul starts this letter off this way is because Paul and Silvanus are also known and went by uh, Silas and then Timothy were the three guys that God used to plant or to start the church in Thessalonica. And so they had started this church, and then they had gotten word about how this church is doing, and they wrote this church a letter. That's the, that's the book that we're going to be studying this fall semester. But what's fascinating to me is that they actually never intended to start the church in Thessalonica. Is there's a really fascinating backstory to how this church came about. Uh, it's interesting. You would think that they would have tried to start a church in Thessalonica because uh, Thessalonica was a key city. A little context for you here, but uh, it was a city. It was the capital of the region of Macedonia. And it was a large city. It was about 200,000 people, people estimate, uh, in the first century. And it was a key uh, trade route and, and, uh, and uh, travel route. It had two major Roman uh, roads intersected in Thessalonica, and it was on the sea, so it was a great trade route. So it was a very strategic city to uh, you know, think, okay, let's get the gospel to that city. But Paul and his missionary team never set out to do that. In fact, on their second, Paul's second missionary journey, and I think I have a, uh, a, a map up here of, you, uh, of that journey, you'll see that he starts off from Jerusalem to Antioch where his home church was, and then he goes into Asia or Asia Minor to revisit the churches that he helped start in his first missionary journey. And that that was his plan, to go visit those churches and then go start other churches in Asia Minor, perhaps even further up into Asia, but if you read in Acts 16, uh, the Holy Spirit kept stopping Paul and redirecting him uh, from going further into Asia and actually moving him towards the seacoast. And I, I can't tell you what that looked like. I don't know how the Spirit stopped Paul and redirected him, but if you read in Acts 16, you'll see the record of that. And as Paul got closer to the seacoast, uh, he, he had a, a vision or a, a dream of a man standing in Macedonia, and he's saying, come over here and help us. Come over here and help us. And so Paul moves from Asia Minor and crosses the Aegean Sea into what is Europe. Like this is fascinating to me because uh, through God's sovereignty, moving Paul, he was moving the gospel into Europe for the very first time. And, of course, if you're familiar, like, that because God, uh, God moved Paul into Europe, into Philippi, and then later to Thessalonica, that the gospel then went from there to eventually to Rome. And eventually, after time had passed from Rome to, to England, and then more time passes, right, to England, to, to America, and eventually to us. And so we should all be thankful that God brought Paul to Thessalonica. It was on the route to God bringing the gospel to us, and yet he had never intended to go there in the first place, but he did. He finally shows up there, and we're thankful that he did. And so open up your Bibles, like I said, to Acts chapter 17, and we're just going to look at the story of what happened when Paul came and brought the gospel to the, uh, to the church in Thessalonica. 
All right, let me read for you all these 10 verses. And this is really interesting. Like this, These 10 verses are the only account of Paul and his one and only visit to Thessalonica. And yet we have two letters in the New Testament that were written to the church that uh, he visits in here. But he's only there for like three weeks, maybe four weeks. Some, some commentaries think maybe he was there for, but like he was there for a very short period of time. And yet uh, incredible stuff happens. And two letters that are contained in the New Testament were written as a result. So this is, gives you a really helpful backdrop to what we're studying this fall. Let me read it. Verse 1. Now, uh, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and when they, heard these th- when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. All right. You look at this passage through uh, the lens of movement. What you see is that there's this one catalyst, this one thing that happens that causes two different groups of people to move in two opposite directions, to respond really strongly to this one thing. And what's that one thing? Well, it's, it's Paul preaching the gospel. Put another way, you could just say the gospel moves people to respond strongly. Two different directions. One responds with this like great receptivity, and the other group of people respond with this great opposition. Right? You see that? The gospel moves people to respond very strongly. And what I want to point out from the get-go is you just see that passage is that you don't have an account of anybody in the entire city of Thessalonica. And there's tons of like language here talking about the whole city being in an uproar. Like the whole city is at play here. You don't see anyone that responds to the gospel mildly. Right? You don't see anyone that says, oh man, that Oh, that's, that's good for you. That, that sounds good, but not, that's not for me. Everyone either responds really strongly in re- receiving it or really strongly in opposing it. And guys, that's just helpful for us to take note of as we study this book this semester. That's the, that's the background. That's the backdrop of everything that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, that he's writing to people who've really responded strongly to the Word of God that are living in a context of people who've lived, who have really rejected and strongly oppose the gospel message. So 
to understand this, just how God uses the gospel to move people, we have to first uh, take note of like, what exactly is the gospel message. And what I love about this passage is that you have this like, really clear and succinct statement about the gospel, about what Paul was preaching. Just go back to verse 2. What you see is this. It says, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was uh, necessary for the Christ to suffer, that's his first major point, and to rise from the dead, that's his second major point, and saying that Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's his third major point. Like we see here what Paul's message was. Here's the gospel. The Messiah needed to suffer and rise again, and Jesus is the Messiah. What's fascinating to me is that people would respond so strongly to that message. Now, the reason they responded so strongly is because he was primarily speaking to a Jewish audience or to people who had uh, aligned themselves with uh, Judaism. That's uh, these devout Greeks, another term for them in the New Testament are uh, God-fearers. And that these, uh, these God-fearers or devout Greeks, they were Gentiles in the meaning that they were not nationalistic Jews, but they had uh, rejected the polytheism of their day and aligned themselves with Judaism, saying that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so what Paul would do is that he would show up and he would open up the scriptures. He'd go to the synagogue where they would all gather on the Sabbath and he would open up the scriptures and he would make this case. In fact, if you pay attention to the verbs that are used in in verse 4, you notice that it says he reasoned with them explaining and proving, and then later it says proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And what that would look like is like he, he, would, he would open up the scriptures and he would help them see. Look, this is what the scriptures that you believe are from God. This is what they say the, uh, the Messiah will do. And then let me tell you, this is what Jesus has done. So I don't know exactly what passages he, he went to, but he, he probably went to Isaiah 53 to make the point that, like, look, the Messiah must suffer. And that was an unpopular uh, thought of the day. Most of the Jews thought that when the Messiah came, and Messiah is, an, is uh, the Hebrew word for Christ, the Greek is uh, Christ. It also means, like, the anointed one or, or the king, the anointed king. So when the, when the Messiah comes, when the anointed one will come, they thought he would just set up, set up rule, that he would just reign right then and there. But Paul had to explain to them, no, no, the Messiah, he will one day reign, but first he had to suffer. And he probably took them to Isaiah 53 and read like this. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You'd say, look, no, look, look at your scriptures. It tells us that the Messiah must suffer. And the reason he must suffer is as a way to pay for our sins, that God was going to lay on the Messiah our iniquity, that we, though we've gone astray, can be brought back into a restored relationship with God. And then he would explain. And then the, the scriptures would also taught that the Messiah would, in suffering, die, but he would not be abandoned to the grave, but he would rise again. He, I don't know what passage he took him to, but he could have taken them 
to Psalm 16 that talks about how the, the Father will not allow your Holy One to see corruption or abandon him to the pit. And he says, look, the Holy One, the Messiah, though died, did not, did not stay dead. He was not abandoned to corruption, but he rose again from the grave. And then he would say, and this is exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the king. And some people responded with belief. What it says in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So when it says some of them were persuaded, specifically the group that he's referring to there, is that some of the Jews were persuaded. Some of the Jews were persuaded to, to believe and attach themselves to Christ. In addition to them, it says many of the devout Greeks were also persuaded and joined, and then uh, many of the leading women. So you have different cultures, Jews, Gentiles, you have different genders, men and women, that they attach themselves, they believe, they're persuaded, and they attach themselves to Paul and Silas. And the, this term that they attach themselves is super important, okay? I don't want you to miss this. That when it says that they joined Paul and Silas, that word join, it, 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 it more literally means to adhere or attach to or to bond together. It's a very strong word. And what they have done here is that when they were persuaded to believe that Jesus really is the Christ, that he really did suffer and die and rise again for their sins, they said, okay, I believe that, and now I am fully attaching myself to you, Paul and Silas, but even more so through you to Christ, that I am joining what you are about you are serving the king. He is now my king as well. Jesus is my Christ. He's the Christ. And so I've fully given myself to him. And guys, that statement really, really uh, speaks to everything that we're going to read in the book of 1 Thessalonians. See, the reason why they were this uh, model church is because when they were persuaded to believe the gospel... They believed it, and then they fully attached themselves to Christ. To the point that in the, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, uh, when talking about the um, uh, reputation of those uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, sorry, in Thessalonica, it says this. Man, if I could find it. It says that your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Like how's that for a reputation? Like this is how much they gave themselves to Jesus is that quickly they had a reputation amongst all their entire region how they had uh, fully attached themselves to Jesus and abandoned the idols of their day to fully serve their God. Because that's why they were a model church. That when they responded to the gospel, they were so moved to believe that they fully attached. Think about uh, being an Aggie, which uh, is something I don't talk about real often, but uh, I am. And um, 
I know I'm in enemy territory, but hey, we won yesterday, so I feel confident about talking about uh, the fact that I'm an Aggie. Um, when I went to A&M, I, uh, I wasn't real sure about what I was doing because I'd grown up a Longhorn. Both my parents graduated from UT. I'd always been a Longhorn fan. And so when I went off to A&M, I, w- I was planning on enjoying being there with my friends and getting a good education, but I wasn't going to like really dive into the cult that is A&M. And, uh, and so I got there, and that was kind of my, my plan. And then I... I, I I got swept up in it, and it really is. They, like, brainwash you there. It's really crazy. And, and, and you start referring to those people at, at, at A&M who did not actually get brainwashed and fully jump all the way in. You, you, you call those people two percenters. Two percenters. And that was like, the, like the, the worst thing that could be said of you if you're an Aggie, is that you were a two percenter. It's like you're, you're an Aggie simply by name, but not by practice. And like you were really looked down on. And guys, what I want to help you see is like when the, the, those that responded to the gospel in Thessalonica, not a single one of them was a two percenter. And it wasn't because of weird social pressure to, like, you have to act like you are if you're really not. It was because when they were persuaded, they jumped all the way in. They responded to the greatest message of all time, that there really is a God and that he really does love us so much that he, though we had rejected him and lived a life of sin apart from him and fell short of his righteous standard, he did not abandon us, but he pursued us, came after us, and he suffered for us. And he died for us. And then he rose again to make a way for us to be uh, uh, forgiven and restored into a perfect relationship uh, with him, a perfect, eternal, satisfying, love-soaked relationship with him. And when they heard that, they said, okay, so Jesus, you're telling me, is the king. He's the Messiah. But not only is he the anointed one, but he is also my savior He's also the one who's loved me with a love that I've always longed for. Once they were persuaded of that, they jumped all the way in. They fully attached themselves, even in the midst of strong opposition. And there was very strong opposition. And that's the rest of the passage. It's what we see, that what happens next. And verse 5, it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. And he set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Like, you see this, this, this language? Like, they're an uproar, like they're, they're attacking a house, they're dragging people out. Like, they're upset. And why are they so upset? Because, well, the Jews or the Jewish leaders who had rejected the gospel were so upset that people were believing that Jesus was who he said he was. And they said, like, he's, he cannot be that. And so they respond really strongly when they see other people following that, what they would, in their mind, see as a lie. And they, what they decide to do, their strategy to try to get people to not believe that, is that they, they cause this giant uproar. They, they, they basically hire uh, these ruffians, <laughs> these men of the rabble. I love how the King James Version puts it. It, it puts it as uh, at finding uh, lewd men of a baser sort. And, 
<laughs> Sometimes you need some old English there. But, uh, and, and they got these guys to stir up this giant mob in the, in, the city, in the city. So the whole city was stirred up. And then they bring uh, Jason out because they had looked for Paul and they thought Paul and Silas and Timothy were staying with Jason. But he, they weren't at that time, but they still bring Jason out and these others out. And they throw him before the, the, the city and the, uh, before the city authorities. And they say this, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were happy for those who had found something that was good for them. Live and let live. Now, that's not what it says, is it? But guys, you feel how different this is from our culture? Like, we live in such a pluralistic culture that we're just so norm, you know, so used to, like, yeah, if you found what's good for you, then good for you. I'm happy that you found that, but, you know, it's not my thing, but I've got my thing, and I want you to be happy that I found my thing. And, and certainly, like, we should treat each other with respect and kindness. But the people in Thessalonica... When they had heard the gospel and they said, like, that, I don't believe that's true, they actually responded in a rational way by strongly opposing it like they did. Like What the verse really ends by saying is that in the people, the city, and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And disturbed is a strong word. They were greatly angered. They were disturbed when they had heard these things. No one here had a mild reaction to the gospel. Like the, the gospel message was that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord. And yet he also suffered and died for you and rose again. Guys, either that's true or it's not true. But if, it, if it's not true, then we should reject that and run far from it. But if it is true, then it has incredible implications. Like the significance and the importance of this message begs for a strong response. And that we would see, okay, there really is a God. He really is the king of kings. He's the Messiah. Therefore, I have to actually give an account. Like I, there's someone who really has the authority to call the shots for my life instead of just me calling the shots for my own life. But then that this king is also the one who is, like I said earlier, loved me with the love that I've always longed for. That he's not just my king, but he's my savior? Well, that's amazing. And if I believe that, then let me not just be persuaded, but then go on living my life as if like, yeah, I'm glad that's true, but I'm going to live my own way. Let me say, I'm glad that's true, and let me fully attach myself to him. Give myself fully to him. That he would truly be my king and my savior. I love what John Stott says in his book, Basic Christianity. 
He makes the point that, uh, the, the, that the only rational way to respond to Jesus is extremely. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him, and they tried to give their whole lives to him. Listen, there is room for exploring. There is room and time for the reasoning and the explaining and the proving and engaging in that conversation. And if you don't know where you stand when it comes to Jesus, then we want you to tell, tell you, like, Midtown is a church that was always started with the purpose of being a safe place to ask any questions you have and to explore, and you don't have to have it all together, and you can be a Christian for 10 years but be wrestling with doubts and be okay to talk about that. There's room for that. But for those of us who say, I know who Jesus is. I believe that he is the Christ. And I believe that he did die, suffer and die and rise again. Then for us, let it be said, and like, let's just take note, the only rational response to that isn't just to believe it, but to give ourselves fully to him as a result of how he has fully given himself to us. And my question for us today is have you fully attached yourself to Jesus? Not attach yourself like in a sense like for your salvation, it begins there in your response to the gospel with belief. But for your sanctification is what I'm talking about. For your progress of your faith, that you would continue to be moved in Christ's likeness and join God in what he's doing in the world, you not just simply need to believe it, that's where it starts, but to really be moved in your faith, you need you got to give yourself fully to him. Say, you are the Christ. You're the king and my savior. Why would I ever live my own way? I'm going to fully attach myself to you. And my question is, have you done that? See, the believers in, first, uh, believers in Thessalonica, they did that. And what we're going to read and study this, this semester, they're like the most of the con, uh, con, uh, con, uh, commending words from Paul are as a result of them fully attaching themselves to Jesus. And that's where it starts for us. Will we fully attach ourselves to our Savior? Have you done that? Do not have a mild response. It's irrational. If Jesus really is who he says he is and really has done what he says he's done, let's give ourselves fully to him. Let me pray. And, uh, invite the worship team to come on up. Father God, may we respond like the believers in Thessalonica did. Lord, hearing the gospel, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do. Lord, let us be not just persuaded, but that we'd fully join, that we'd fully attach ourselves to you, Christ, in light of who you are, how great you are, or that we would, with wild abandon, say, I'm all in because of who, <laughs> you're the best. You're the king, and you're my loving Savior. God, move us to fully attach for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray, amen.